Hello and welcome to another episode of Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Darren Heyman of the band Hefner. Darren talks about all the musical projects that he's been involved with since Hefner and the forthcoming plans to release more of their back catalogue on vinyl, as well as a new solo album. Darren's been creating some really interesting pieces over the last few years, so I really would recommend visiting his website, which I've put links to in the show notes and filling your boots and all the stuff that he's been up to. As per usual, I'll be back at the end of the interview to talk about all the ways that you can support this podcast. But in the meantime, here's Darren. Welcome to the podcast, Darren Heyman. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. Whereabouts are you? I'm at home in southeast London. Um, I have just watched all nearly five, six of last night's Endeavour. So as soon as this is over, I shall find out who did it. <laughs> yeah, are you binge watching something that is uh, available on the iPlayer then? Is that right? No, it's, a, it's, 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 the, it's the Inspector Moore's prequel and it was on last night. So no, I'm not binge watching them. I, I, this one I'll watch week by week. Ah. Um, I quite like, um, yeah, I quite like detective fiction, whodunits, things like that. And it's quite difficult to, for these programs to be original these days, though, don't you? But don't you think? But but going sort of down the prequel route with you with don't endeavor. even really this sort of thing. You don't even want to be original, really. No, it's a bit like Columbo. You kind of want every episode to be exactly the same, or it's like <laughs> Agatha Christie or Poirot. You don't really want originality. You just want a subtle difference of location or theme, but basically everything stays exactly the same. Yeah, my my dad is is absolutely addicted to um, Midsummer Murders and Poirot and e- everything that you can yeah. make, make grave and everything you can get your hands on. And, yeah, I mean, um, I'm, not addi- I'm not addicted to some of them, but it's the same <laughs> difference, really. It's just like you pick a team, really, and I didn't pick Midsummer, I picked Morse, you know, but it's the same thing. I can't argue that this is any better than Midsummer or anything like that. When are they going to remake Bergerac? This is one I want to know. This is the burning question. <laughs> Did they make Bergerac without him? Most of them, they end up Midsummer's. They did, didn't they? Yes, yes. Did they make Bergerac without Bergerac? Yeah, I don't think they did. I don't think they handled Bergerac without the Bergerac. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be the same. But then again, I suppose Endeavour's got legs, so that's. Uh... Anyway, we digress heavily already. <laughs> um, Darren, obviously, I always ask in the podcast how how the last kind of eighteen months has been going for everybody, but you've you've been extremely busy and managed to sort of really um, keep producing music. I think uh, the insular and the creative sort of felt they had an advantage at the beginning of this. You know, if you write songs and draw pictures, you're used to spending a a reasonable amount of time on your own and I can get things done on my own. There's a limit though. There's a, there's a limit to it. And, 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 and you, yeah, you need more. You need you need ideas. You need people. You need friends, like everyone else. And so, um, like most people, the second lockdown was much harder than the first. The first had a uh, a bit of novelty around it, but the second one, you know, running from December through to about May, that that was tough. In terms of the writing, though, have you found that you're drawing on different? aspects or different parts of your life in this situation when you're putting pen to paper when the when the lockdown started i kind of saw i I kind of predicted 
a lot of really bad art, um, a lot of like black and white photographs of abandoned streets and 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 songs about it being imprisoned. And I just kind of had a predict because in a way it's something that happens to all of us. You've got a hard job in making in saying anything that original about it. You know, mm. like what I feel about the lockdown is largely similar as my answer was. It's probably similar to what a lot of people think. So I'm kind of quite loath to write about it in any direct way, whether it has in some other way that that's possible, I guess. I made a record uh, which, you know, because everything takes so long to come out, but I made a record last year, made a, I think it's going to be, well, it is going to be a double album where no one else was on it. And that's unusual. I mean, even though my records are under my name alone, I'm normally getting people to play some instruments that they can play better than me to play them. Mm. So I suppose that's a kind of um, reaction to it. I I did everything myself because it seemed like the, the easiest solution in in a lockdown. But yeah, I'm not I'm not so sure whether I've written about it particularly. No. But this kind of back to basics approach to sort of recording as well. I mean, I'm reading sort of what you've been up to in terms of just getting back to the an eight track and just um, keeping very everything pretty lo-fi. Is that a refreshing change for you? Oh, I don't even know if it's a change, really. I mean, I mean, I've, I've recorded at home for years. I like restrictions, so I always tie my hand behind my back in some way. So, yeah, the Home Time album, I limited myself to eight tracks. The record after, I've limited myself to 12 tracks. I usually write down a few rules, like this album won't have acoustic instruments or this album won't have guitars on or something. I think it's a... um, I I think it's an influence of going to art college. I I remember uh, one art tutor particularly giving us... Uh, different sort of uh, instructions like that for drawing classes. Uh, one week he told us to go in with bags of flour. We tied bags of flour to our arms to make them tired so that um, we would think more about the marks we were making. Mm. Um, as to lo-fi, yeah, I get, I get a bit confused by those words. I mean, obviously I know what you mean when you say it. And I, was, mm. and I, I can't deny that some of my records sound lo-fi to some people. But I listen to so many records that just would be described as lo-fi. I, I don't know if I can honestly tell the difference, really, you know. I mean, I think some people don't know what lo- lo-fi means. I think some people think that lo-fi means not many instruments. I honestly think some people think lo-fi means not many instruments. Um, and I use, you know, I use quite expensive microphones. I think like hi-fi to, I think some hi-fi to some people means echo and tambourines. I think you put tambourines <laughs> and echo on the record and it sounds hi-fi. Um, yeah, I, I think for me, I've always, I've always kind of had made that connotation with lo-fi in terms of just the the recording process and how more organic it might be, and may, maybe that's wrong, but that's how it feels. Well, to I me. don't, I don't, I don't mind lo-fi. That's that's for certain. So when I, if I record something and it sounds good, and like when I was doing Faithful Abilities, if I record something in a church and it has some technical problems with it, but the spirit of the performance is good, then I would 
take the 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 quality of the performance over the quality of the recording i think and i think mm-hmm. that's what people who are often described as recording lo-fi i think that's what they're doing they're kind of looking for another quality which isn't necessarily the best bass and high frequencies it isn't uh, whereas other people would forgo a lot of other stuff in order to have the highest frequency and a uh, uh, highest quality yeah yeah and they're right to as well you know yeah. i don't want you know, I don't want Fleetwood Mac to make it. Actually, actually that's a bad choice, actually. Tusk is kind of <laughs> lo-fi places. I don't want Girls Aloud records to sound lo-fi. I want their records to sound hi-fi. You know, yeah. there's yeah. like, it's it's horses for courses. Would you say, I don't want to use the word concept because it sounds ridiculous and maybe a bit, um, well, it's the wrong choice of word, but you've put out some interesting sort of projects, I'm guessing, and particularly music to watch news by uh, is something that... I'm thinking of, and of, and obviously before that, the album, uh, the albums you were producing with the, the about the villages. Yeah, um, yeah. I think if anything, it's a little less concepty uh, just lately. I mean, still, you're right. The news thing, and then the home time was a breakup album. Uh, but yeah, the thankful villages was free concept albums. And before that, I did an album about the English Civil War. Um, I kind of find it odd that more people don't, really. I think a song is only usually three or four minutes long. You can only say so much in it. At best, it's like a poem or a a one-page story. Mm. And most albums are a collection of short stories. They're sort of 10 or 12 short stories. And it seems odd that like more people wouldn't treat them as uh, chapters in one story. You know, it's only three quarters of an hour long, an album. I'm, I'm surprised. I mean, I think there are, actually. I think, I think more people do make conceptual, conceptually-led records these days. I think that thing of it being a dirty word was, was, was maybe an overhang from punk or something. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't mind it. I don't mind if I have a if I have an idea good enough. I don't mind stripping it over a record. Because um, because with the music to watch news by, it's something that is instantly accessible, and it, it does take you into it's like a snapshot in a moment. And I wanted to ask you really, kind of how how that idea came to fruition with you. Well, it was just the uh, the um, the Trump Biden thing and the the insurrection in in. Uh, what do we call it an insurrection? You know what I'm talking about, though, the Capitol Hill business. The Capitol Hill, like, and, storming. Um, the yeah. uh, I was just watching a lot of CNN. I kind of got sick of it fairly quickly, but I hadn't really watched CNN before. And it just seemed to be, like, news run by the good guys. But after a while, you, you kind of get tired of that bias. Um, you know, like, mm. you get tired enough of the bias when it's right. But actually, after a while, CNN seems to just be shouting the same thing at you after a while and even that's tiring but yeah it was another stressful period of news and i was just kind of watching it too much so i just found myself doodling on the guitar uh and making these little tunes so it really is quite simple as a concept it's just a, a title that describes literally what i was doing right in little um tunes whilst watching the same 
snatch it of news repeat over and over again. Mm. And they're quite short tracks too. Yeah, I did. Um, there's a there's a, a single or an album out that came out about a year and a half ago called um, I Can Travel Through Time, mm. which is, uh, is it 10 or 12? 10 songs on a seven inch single. So each song is a minute long. So, so short songs have become a thing I'm quite interested in lately. Um, often when you write a song, you write, I mean, often I think I write a chorus first, you write a chorus and you have a verse, then usually you have the hard bit is writing a second verse, which is usually kind of the same thing that's in the first verse said in a different order. Yeah. And so yes. I'm kind of curious about how short songs can be. Yeah, yeah, I like short songs at the moment. It's one of those things, what I know, having been in a band or several bands and just our songs were always eight minute, nine minute long. And it would be like, well, why? Why have we got all this baggage? And thinking, you know, we, we, you put yourself under so much pressure to continue to write lyrics for a song, which kind of does everything it needs to do within the first minute and a half, two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think you, you, you kind of, there's a sort of fear that people haven't quite got the good bit, isn't there? I think, you know, you, you're in a band and you've written an introduction or you've, you've written this bit. And you like it, but there's almost like a fear that people won't understand or or, or like the good bit enough. And so there's a, a desire to repeat it. Like, oh, why don't we why don't we do this bit a few more times? I'm really enjoying it. That's <laughs> the other thing in a band. You're normally really enjoying playing it. So it seems natural to say to everyone, should we make it a bit longer? But of course, these things of how much you enjoy it, um, you know, don't, doesn't really matter. The audience don't care how much you're enjoying it. It's just whether. And I think the thing about a very short song is, is, well, hopefully you're 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 assuming a greater intelligence of your listener. Maybe, maybe yeah. Just open. They'll get it quicker than we reckon. You know. I mean, when you look back at your kind of musical career, I mean, is there any kind of point in time where you you're inspired to sort of be, become a songwriter? Oh, uh, you mean sort of right back at the beginning? Right, oh yeah, all the way back. <laughs> um, I, I, I brought my first guitar uh, off of a friend the day after seeing uh, Billy Bragg in Barking. So I think, I've told the story a few times, but I kind of think that even though I liked music a lot up to then, um, the, the, the thing of seeing someone and thinking I could do it was seeing Billy Bragg. And that sounds a little arrogant because he's obviously very good on stage and he's very good at talking to an audience. Mm. And it might sound a bit arrogant, but I saw that and thought, oh, I could do that. But he was doing it with just a guitar. And I maybe I hadn't seen many people do that before. But the other key thing about that experience was that he was singing and talking in my accent. So he was from Barking and I was from Brentwood, which is only up the road. And until then, yeah, I loved, well, I don't know what accent I felt like I had to sing in, but I certainly hadn't heard that my accent very often on records. I certainly hadn't heard the Essex accent on records. I mean, if I'd, now I know that there were people. Now if I'd known better, I would have known to listen out for, um, I don't know, 
Doctor Feelgood or, or things like that. Or, yeah, yeah. But but I mean, yeah, I, I didn't really hear that accent very often. And so, in terms of songwriting, obviously that inspired you to go and write songs. But were you, were you kind of already sort of in that process uh, in terms of you know just sort of putting your your heart onto paper? Um. No, no, I, I wasn't. I wasn't really a, a a poet or anything at school. And this would me learning guitar is probably later than some kids. So that would have been. I mean, he wasn't by any means an early gig. I'd seen lots of gigs before seeing Billy Bragg, and I'd been to lots of shows in London. So I would have been seventeen when I brought my first guitar, uh, and. No, I didn't have a, a book of lyrics or poetry or anything. I did draw comics um, throughout school. So I guess in that sense, I was a storyteller of a kind. Mm. And I was at art college and I was drawing. But no, I didn't, I wasn't already, I didn't have any sort of creative confessional streak in me. Uh, it was more like I got a guitar and try to figure out how to put songs together and then oh I guess I need to write some lyrics you know I guess I need to write some words for these songs so so no that wasn't already there where do you think you were coming from then in those early sort of songwriting sessions that you were having was were you kind of drawing on any sort of specific inspiration for the content yeah definitely I mean the only thing that could inspire me would be the records I'd heard. The only music I knew would be the records I heard. So, I mean, I, I wrote songs for a long time before anyone heard them. Um, when we did this thing, uh, there's there's a record called Catfight by Hefner where we sort of went back a bit earlier, um, you know, with unreleased stuff. And mm. I think there's a point about 96 or 90, which is only about a year or two before Hefner's first record, where I thought, actually, I don't really want anyone to hear anything before this point. Like, so what I guess I'm trying to say is it, ta it, ta it takes a good, well, actually almost 10 years, but it takes a good eight or nine years of me dicking about in bands and writing songs before it sounds much like anything you would know mm. so it's hard to really remember actually I mean there's 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 no recordings of the first three or four years of songwriting and I don't even know whether I'd be able to find the exercise books but I would imagine like some of them like a lot of people's first songs they would almost sound like direct copies really you know yeah, yeah, you yeah. just sort of work out that a couple of chords sound oh that reminds me of this song and it would sound like that song. I think I think you 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 learn by copying. I always found it and still do equate it to a puzzle. I think it's yeah. a puzzle writing a song. So I think uh you have two chords and then you sort of put them together and then okay, well, how does that work? And I sort of still find I think of them as puzzles. I find them quite addictive, not unlike a crossword. And right. I think that, that that's what I enjoyed 
early on and that's still kind of what I enjoy and I suppose I enjoy making that puzzle harder by saying uh like I say by putting restrictions on it sometimes or saying well this song has to be about this village in this county or it has to be you know uh about this uh woman who was hung in you know the 1642 in the Essex witch trials or something you know because um, that makes it even more of a puzzle just wanted to, to go back to Hefner and that that sort of the early days of Hefner and and, and just to to say that I think well would you agree that um, it wasn't quite a traditional start for a band in terms of you you had a almost like a, a sound and a product that was ready to go and you just had to find the people that you were comfortable to play the music with there was a lot of material like once we put out a single and once once we started making records. We, I mean, I mean, most of the first two albums were there, were written before the first album. Like I remember when we were making Breaking God's Heart that we were playing him for the alcohol and him for the cigarettes in live shows. Um, mm-hmm. Like we were able to say to the record company, we've, you know, we've got 40, 50 songs. The, the band did have a couple of incarnations before it was that lineup. So there was initially a um, different pace player and drummer, and I was even sort of doing shows on my own under that name. There's sort of flyers and things from the Bull and Gate where I just used that as a, a name to describe what I was doing with no one, just me and a guitar. And then when I decided to do a single that's when I asked John Lennon to play with me. So, so actually what's really unusual about Hefner is the first time Hefner played together is on the first single. I think we maybe rehearsed a couple of days before and then we went through rehearsal studio. So you actually, one, one kind of curious thing about Hefner is that you, you can actually kind of hear the recorded start of, of that, like the lineup that, that was, you know, the only line, well, the only lineup there ever was really. There was only, you know, no one left once we started making records. That process as well was was that something that um, you felt was different that was happening at the at, in that time, or did you know any other bands that were sort of doing what you were doing? I mean, because it feels to me that there was a different sort of more of a um, a definitive sound to what you were doing than that was different from what was going on in the nineties, especially the latter part. Yeah, of the 90s. actually, no, I don't. I don't think I do really. I mean, I, I don't know if I would have said that at the time, or maybe I'm, I don't know how conscious I would have been at the time, but now, I mean, I don't listen to those records very often. Sometimes I have to listen to them for, you know, work. And I have actually recently had to listen to some of our early radio sessions for something we're releasing. And um, I do think we're, we're, we're quite a strange sounding band, actually. I think it's quite um, a, an odd sound I think my voice is quite odd the first album doesn't even have kick drum on it uh and just plays a snare and hi-hat so the first album doesn't have any sort of really sub frequencies it's it's all kind of quite odd and I'm quite surprised now looking back at how confident I was or we were and and yeah, and lyrically, it's it, it's it's really quite abrasive uh, in retrospect. What what other sort of bands were you? Would you say would have been sort of um, 
support for you then at the time, Com- comrades? If well, you I mean, well, well, I mean, the, the the sort of couple of the couple of years just prior to releasing the first single, I was really listening to uh, American bands and uh, American lo-fi bands. So I was listening to Sebado, um, Pavement, Mountain Goats, like that really early Mountain Goats where they were recording on, you know, just tape cassettes, Mm. uh, Daniel Johnston. So all of that not only was inspiring me in a kind of punk rock way and a kind of anyone can do it. It sounded, these records sounded immediately exciting to me and they were recorded at home, mm. but also like the, the way they were being made. The, the, a lot of these were bands. Uh, some of them were bands on proper record labels, but some of them weren't even on proper record labels. The friends were putting the records out and it was all very DIY. And um, what was kind of really pivotal was there's this band that were from uh, Portland, Oregon, called The New Bad Things. And they, I'd heard them on John Peel, and they came over and did a show at upstairs at the garage. And there's about six or seven of them. And then during the gig, they say, we haven't got anywhere to stay tonight because they usually hadn't. And they all ended up staying at my flat because I volunteered for them to stay. And that started this friendship with them in Portland, Oregon. And I went over and played with them. And I saw them doing singles where they wrapped pieces of paper around for the sleeve and, and, and had a friend who could do it. And I knew one person in London who could do that. And so I came back from that trip and said, let's put a single out. And as soon as I put that single out, uh, everything like it paid it paid well it gave me the rest of my life really you know mm. um, you know John Peel played it and things like that so 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 almost like creatively actually literally directly um, that that those bands and that kind of scene informed me how to do it I suppose what what made it an interesting mix was that I was listening to all these American bands but refusing to sing in an, in an American accent and, and, and constantly referencing London places. Mm. So I think somewhere between those two things is what, uh, you know, makes Hefner, made Hefner a little bit of an odd prospect. I was going to ask um, in, in terms of like your control of like artwork and things like that as well, because there was a definite sort of iconography that you're using or you know the, the sort of pop art style or not quite but the cartoon style is that yeah was that was that all you yeah it was all me um i mean although 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 there's a bit of thievery involved obviously i'm, I'm finding things and appropriate them and i think uh i think if i was doing it now i would fee- f- uh steal less i think I, would, <laughs> I think i perhaps should have created more of it myself i think i was probably playing a risky game of copyrights when i was doing that um, it sort of just came out of how I created the flyers and once again I've recently found because we, what we're doing is we're going to release some of the BBC sessions and I've recently found a scrapbook with all the early flyers in and I'm just I'm sort of just making them at the time on um, photocopying machines uh-huh. so it came out of that really of just sort of 
using found or clip art and distorting it by blowing it up a lot and, and pushing it down. And I like, I like, uh, well, I don't, I, I don't like the Smiths. I never liked the Smiths, but I did like the fact that all their sleeves matched. And I remember thinking, if I liked the Smiths, I would definitely want to have all of these seven inches. I would definitely want to have them in a row. Yeah. So I, I quite like the idea of making something that people could collect and have in a set. Yeah. That is a thing. It's a collectible thing. And it also is satisfying to look at, isn't mm-hmm. it? It's, I'm always perplexed when bands mess about with just uh, single releases and, and and just cover art and and then just change their logo and stuff like that. It's just seems yeah, a bit weird. yeah. I mean, I think actually, in retrospect, I could have done it even more. Really, there's kind of a point after Fidelity Wars where all the singles become full color and the artwork gradually gets a bit more complicated. And I think I could, probably shouldn't have done that. I probably should have kept all the singles to be monochrome. That would be really nice if they mm. stayed that way all the way through, in retrospect. I mean, you got a lot of critical acclaim for the recordings, and you, you know, you were, you were a band's band, uh, or a musician's sort of band. And that must have been a relief as well, I suppose, if, you, if you're someone that, uh, you know, puts yourself under the microscope and, and, and opens yourself up in terms of the songwriting. Was there pressure on you to sort of keep keep that quality and, you know, in terms of the writing as well? Just at the end, there was. Not really at the beginning. Uh, the first two records were kind of written and we were doing, t- like, if anyone asks us, we'd just say yes. There's all sorts of... I mean, I can't really keep track of it myself, really. My website's in the mess, but there was all sorts of little seven inches and EPs we did for different people. And we were often going to our record company and saying, can we do a record for these guys? They've just asked us this couple of Spanish labels we did things for. And we just felt like we had piles and piles of songs. And then after the first two records, then I was excited to write a new record you know I was uh, so so that was no trouble either I really enjoyed writing We Love the City which I think is maybe my favourite so that wasn't a pressure either the way the finance had been set up what was that we could kind of all not have a job as long as we did an album a year and I think probably the fourth one, I started to feel like, yeah, maybe that would have been better if I'd had like, if someone had said like, take six months longer or, or take a year longer. Mm. So, so maybe I felt a little bit of pressure on the fourth one. I mean, not that there wasn't fucking tons of stuff still. I mean, I think we still did that record and had, I think it's about, there's, there's tons of outtakes from that record which end up on cat fights. It wasn't like there wasn't a lot of songs, but I still think there was a slight quality drop, if I'm honest, mm. on the fourth one. Um, and that kind of that kind of in itself caused us to end, really. That seemed like enough to end it, really. The sort of maths of the band didn't quite work in, in, in terms of like keeping going. Yeah. And I quite a lot of those bands I was talking about earlier 
quite a lot of them had had, you know, reasonably short careers. You know, I don't know, what did Pavement do? Five or six records. Galaxy 500 did three. Dinosaur Jr. did four. Pixie did five. I mean, I know some of these bands have reformed now. But um, I quite like that idea. I quite like that idea of a, a short little canon, you know, a band that kind of did a, a short range of work certainly enough b-sides and stuff for you to hunt down if you were so inclined mm. i think i always knew that really i think i always sort of had a plan that the band wouldn't wouldn't be a rolling stones it wouldn't go on and on or or a new order or whatever mm. I, I kind of had this idea i think i think i knew in my heart that that was going to be the case three four five records or something you know I know you said this before, but there's no chance of a Hefner re- reform, is there? No, no. I mean, I mean, just someone's got to, haven't they? I mean, someone's got to not do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, every, literally every fucking band's going to do it. <laughs> I mean, I think also the other thing is as well is like, I mean, you, you, you yourself may not know if 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 you like that band, you might like be blind to it, but they're just. There isn't really the sort of money being offered that's hard to say no to. Okay. You know, I can yeah. imagine, like, if you look at, say, even, an, I mean, like, pavement aren't massive or anything, but pavement are big enough, whereas the money they're being offered, I should imagine, is enough to sort of really sort yourself out for a few years. You know, like, if, if those guys are, are, you know, they're all in there, mid fifties, if they just do payment for two years, that's going to be a lot of money. I don't blame them, but like, it wouldn't be anything like that for Hefner. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be enough money to kind of spoil the memory of Hefner for. So Mm. that's, I think that's an advantage of our size. I think bands, our size find it easier to say no to that stuff. You know, Mm. I mean, I don't even know why I'm saying say no to that stuff. Precisely, nobody's offered me any money to ever reform Hefner. I don't even why I'm pretending that people have offered money. <laughs> no one's ever offered me money to re- reform Hefner. Actually, that's not true. I can think of one festival that made an inquiry about it. Yeah. But that's, yeah. So when when can we expect the... Well, you've got two, as you said, you alluded to at the beginning of the podcast, you've got the the, 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 the album that's coming out uh, that you're just finalising. Well, I mean, in terms of the interview, in terms of the interview being more about you know, more about the beginning of the career and and Hefner. There's quite a lot coming out. So we are um, we are re we are re-releasing We Love the City and Dead Media on vinyl, which should be around Christmas or just after Christmas. And there will hopefully be sort of shows in March that won't be Hefner reforming, but I do do sometimes do shows where I say, well, I'll just do those songs. So I do do that. Ah. So there'll be some shows in March and, and not often I don't mind Jack. Uh, I mean, I don't mind any of the guys in Hefner. I love all three of them, but, but like there's, it feels like you can have one guy and it not be a reunion, but any, like if you had two, then it seems <laughs> like all but one is missing. Um, so I think Jack would do those shows with me. And then we're also releasing a, a live album called Made of Ale, which was a show that we did at the BBC for John Peel's show. And that's been on only available on CD previously. So we're releasing that on 
vinyl, I think, on a record store date. And as well as that as well, this label called Precious Recordings uh, are doing the John Peel and Steve Lamack sessions. And they're doing them on these gatefold seven inches. So in actual fact, uh, there's fucking tons of Hefner releases. And so this is into is probably good practice because I'm probably going to have to start talking about them a bit more often. And so that, uh, that, have you been involved in sort of like uh, in the sort of design process for the for the albums and the sleeves and all the sort of all the other shenanigans that goes on? Yeah, with yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's not too hard to do. You you actually actually all you have to really do is you know put a new barcode on in a new record label. Essentially, you're you're trying to. I think when you're trying to re-release something on vinyl, you're trying as hard as possible to replicate um, what was there before. Yeah. Um, the, the the Peel Sessions thing was a little interesting because the um, the label has their own kind of design, uh, which is having a photograph of the band on the front. Mm. And, and so that was interesting because it was like, oh, right, well, they're not going to look like Hefner Records. And they were saying no. But I think it's kind of okay because... I don't know, it's kind of outside the band in a way. It's like when we played for the BBC, I don't know, it looks okay. Yeah, but they're not, yeah. they're pretty. They're sort of, they sort of gatefold and then inside I write the sleeve notes. And yeah, we're going to do this thing of finding the flyers. It's going to have postcards in with old Hefner flyers and stuff. Oh, that sounds um, amazing. So yeah, there's actually going to be, most of the next records I'm going to release for a while are going to be sort of Hefner rarities and re-release. But the double album, which should come out next year, is going to be called You Will Not Die, uh, is the title of the... And I think that's an exclusive. I don't think I've told anyone that before. So I think there you go. Thank you. That's That's nice. I think it's too exclusive, surely. I mean, you you haven't done any... uh... You haven't done any press or anything for the re-releases, I don't think, have you? Or am I, have I not read anything? No, no, no. Actually, no, we haven't really announced it. I mean, I mean, people would assume it was going to happen because we were doing them once a year, but the, um, the uh-huh. pandemic stopped it. And so I think people, we did re-release Breaking God's Heart and Dead Wars. I think everyone would have assumed I was going to, but we didn't because of, you know, COVID and stuff. So it's just, and so now we're just doing both at the same time, whereas we would have... Um, yeah, we would have done one a year. Now we're doing both the third and fourth Pefner albums together. Well, I'm looking forward to spending some money then. And, uh... <laughs> yeah, quite a lot, probably. Yeah. Um, well, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, Darren. I'll let you go. And, uh, okay. Take care. Thanks Thanks so much. Take care. Okay, bye, Chris. Bye. 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 Massive thanks to Darren again for joining me on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to speak to him about all the musical projects that he's been involved with and I would definitely recommend checking out uh, the music that he's been creating. Visit the link again, it's in the show notes and there is so much there to delve into and also you can keep up to date with all the news about the re-releases of those uh, classic Hefner albums. So this is the part of the podcast where I bore you to tears uh, and talk about all the ways that you can support uh, it. So there's three main things you can do. First one is to follow me on social media. Just let me know you're there and interact with me. Let me know what you think of the podcast and any guests that you'd like to hear. So just search for Back to Britpop on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and I'll do my very best to hunt those people down for you. The second thing is to write a review and rate the podcast on whatever device you're listening to it on. 
Uh, that really helps, as I say, all the time. And the third one is if you want to offer some financial support, as I keep saying, I do all this without any support financially. So there's no advertising and I'm not part of any network. So if you can help contribute towards the cost of running it, that would be fab. The link to a coffee donation site is in the show notes. And that's it for another episode. Thank you so much again to everyone who's done any other one of those three. It's a real pleasure to speak to and hear from you. And the feedback has been fantastic. I'll be back next week, hopefully with another episode, if all things go to plan. So in the meantime, take care. <laughs>